I believe that the Bible is true. And I believe that because it's true, what we need to do is conform our beliefs and our worldview to its beliefs and its worldview instead of asking it to conform to our own. And it's because I believe all of this that I'm going to share with you what I'm going to share with you today. Today is week two of a 40-week journey that we're just starting to undertake through Jesus Bible. You might know it better as something called the Old Testament. And today, we really begin it with the first chapter of Jesus Bible, and it's Genesis 1. Now, Genesis 1 may be the um, absolute, I swear, most misunderstood and overanalyzed passage of the Bible. But my hope is that after sharing with you what I'm about to share with you regarding Genesis 1 today, that you never read it the same way again. Now, at some level, if you want to know Jesus' Bible, there's no way around this one, guys. At some point, you've just got to read it for yourself, okay? What I'd like to invite you to do right now is take out a Bible. We have them tucked under the chairs in front of you. Just take it out, and I want to invite you to open Genesis 1. If you don't know where Genesis 1 is, it's easy. Go like that, okay? It is the first book of the Bible. Get past intros and tables of contents and and authors and editors' prefaces and all that nonsense, and just come to Genesis 1. And what I want to invite you to do for the next few minutes is just read it right now. Read it to yourself on your own, and when you read it, Read through 2 verse 3. Don't stop at the end of 1. Read through 2 verse 3. I never really know how to accurately judge reading times, so if you're still going, don't let me cut you off prematurely. Um, And as you continue maybe finishing reading, let me just start pointing some things out, um, maybe to look at as as, as you're reading or as you have read. First, did you notice that there's a series of, of, of patterns literally woven in to the story? It starts with a kind of 6-1 pattern, right? Six days God creates, and on a seventh day he rests. This seems to be the engine that drives it. Day one, day two, day three. Almost like we would write chapters in a book, right? Did you also notice that days four through six parallel days one through three? And that what I mean by that is what is created on day one is filled by day four. What is created on day two is filled by day five. I put a chart together to kind of help you visualize it. But did you catch this? On day one, God creates light. And on day four, God creates the things that shine light. On day two, God creates the sky and the sea. And on day five, he fills it. And on day three, he creates ground and vegetation. And on day six, he he creates the things that fill it and eat it. So there's this pattern in there, did you see, where days one through three are almost setting up a framework, if you will, for days four to six to operate in. Did you also notice that there's certain literary patterns? And it was evening, and it was morning, the blank day. And other things that, that after each aspect of it, God would look and say things like, 
it was good. Now, the problem with Genesis 1 is that most of us, if not all of us, try to read it in light of modern-day current scientific theories of Big Bang and evolution and things like this. But remember, the people to whom Genesis was written were not asking questions that we've been asking in the last 150 years or so about things like Big Bang and evolution. So can I ask you, does it really make sense that Genesis was really only written to us in the last 150 years and that to everyone before that, it was a veiled message, right? Or does it make more sense that the author who wrote it to a people who heard it wrote it for a purpose that they were wrestling with and things that they would understand. Because if you try to do it the other way and read it in terms of current scientific cosmology, if you will, you start hitting thorns. And did you notice some of them? Where'd the water come from in 1 verse 2? Did God create it? Because it kind of seemed to be there, didn't it? And on day one, um, why does God call the light day? If he made light, why doesn't he call it light, right? Uh, and, and like, how is there evening and morning before day four when the sun, moon, and stars are made? How's that work? Why six days? Why six days and not six seconds or six billion years? And... and Guys, can I just ask you on this one? Why in the heck did God have to rest? I mean, (laughs) yeah, you know, did did he really get tired? Was it like, you know, I mean, I'm God and all, but woo, that one wore me out. And do you notice that it seems to give such emphasis to it as well? And so you start to see these thorns, don't you? If you're trying to get Genesis to answer questions of creation and evolution and the questions we ask today, do you see how it just doesn't quite fit. Which leads to what is Genesis 1 talking about and where is the author trying to take us? And what I hope happens today, that after I share what I'm about to share with you regarding Genesis chapter 1, that you never read it the same way again. Now, Genesis 1 begins, it says, in the beginning, God created. Now, if you think about it, there's really two different ways you can think about what it means to create something. Now, at its base definition, creation is just bringing something into existence that wasn't there before, right? But if you parse that down further... Have you noticed how there's certain ways you can talk about creating something, which almost has something like, like I'm building a chair. Like I'm building a building. Like, like, like I'm inventing something new. This wasn't here at all. And I'm, and I'm hammering the pieces together and figuring out what the components need to be. But what about something like this? Creating an art project, a syllabus, a company, a church. If I was to ask you about how you went about creating your company, would you start telling me what the bricks and mortars are made of at a molecular level? Would you tell me about the facility? Would you tell me about the biological and molecular makeup of the people who were your employees? 
Now, that would be kind of stupid, wouldn't it? Because it's not what you're interested in. What you would probably tell me is how you organized it. How you brought these different ideas and pieces together and formed them together to make something new. Think about an art project. If your kid makes you an art project and he goes, Mom, I made this, do you assume that he made, actually made the construction paper, glitter, and glue? Or do you understand it to mean that he took construction paper, glitter, and glue, and fashioned it, and shaped it, and formed it into something new. Are you with me? See, so many people want to make Genesis 1 a story about God creating something out of nothing, when in all reality, Genesis 1 is concerned with something different. It's concerned with God creating order and purpose out of chaos. Because this is so pivotal, I want to say this again. So many people make Genesis 1 about God creating something out of nothing, when in reality, what Genesis 1 is about is God creating order and purpose out of chaos. Now, to be clear, I believe that God made everything we see out of nothing. I believe the Bible as a whole teaches that. But I don't think that's what Genesis 1 is about. And I wonder, how would those people who first heard these words or first read these words of Genesis 1 have understood it in Jesus' day and the days of those who were leading the way before him? I think they would have picked up on something. I think they would have picked up on something in their reading of Genesis 1 because of their worldview that we miss because of our worldview today. And they would have picked up on parallels in the story that matched parallels they knew from life around them in the cultural context in which they lived in their day. And the parallel is this. Temples as they would have read Genesis 1, I believe what they would have seen was pictures and imagery that was so obvious to them about temples. Now, it's kind of like totally lost on us today, right? I mean, let's face it, when's the last time you've gone to a temple? You know, when's the last time you've driven by a temple? And if you have, when's the last time you've done more than this? Cool. And kept going, right? But for them, in their cultural world, where temples were everywhere, and part of the substance and fiber of life, Genesis 1 drips on it. Let me show you what I mean. Now, temples were considered microcosms of creation. All right, what does that mean? You ever do like miniatures or you see people who do miniatures? Maybe they're doing like HO or O-scale model trains, or maybe you were in like Warhammer in your day, or you know, you're doing something like that. Temples were considered to be models or miniatures of creation. And as such, temples were modeled in their construction upon creation. Part of this just starts with names. Let me share with you this morning the name of some temples. The temple in Jerusalem, it was speculated that it was actually called by people heaven and earth. The temple at Nippur, which is down in Iraq today, It was called the bond of heaven and earth. Babylon, foundation of heaven and earth. 
Because they were something more than just miniatures. They were believed to be something else. A temple in the ancient world was an intersection. It was an intersection where heaven and the gods and earth would meet. It was considered a point where the two would collide. It's like Stargate going on here, you know, and you can like kind of interact with the other world. And how does Genesis 1 begin? In the beginning, God created what? Heaven and earth. Did he? You better be sure. But are they hearing something else as well? Now, in the construction of temples, oh, and you could look at Isaiah 65 as well. Isaiah 65, where the prophet writes uh, that, Behold, I will create a new heaven and new earth. And then you find out he is talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Read it sometime and see the way he bounces back and forth so that you're not actually sure what he's talking about. Temple or creation at any given time. It's not because he was old and confused. It was deliberate. Now, you can look at... uh, temples, and there's a a historian who lived at the time of Jesus. He was a a Jew, and he wrote, every one of these objects in the temple is intended to recall and represent the universe. So that when you walked into the temple, what you're seeing is miniature of all creation. If you ever have the guts to read the boring parts of the Bible— you can go through and read about the temple furnishings that God commanded Moses and Solomon to build, and you see they start to drip with cosmic imagery. It starts here. Before you would even come into the temple, into the intersection, you would come to a water basin. And do you know what the Bible actually calls the water basin? The sea. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And before he created anything or before the intersection met, the waters were there and they were formless and void. Are you seeing it? And then you would walk into the temple and it was held up by bronze pillars. And you can read the ancient accounts about the pillars of the earth that hold up the world. And you would go in and you would see incense in the temple. And you would see bread in this outer chamber of the temple. And you would see a menorah, a seven candle lighted candlestick that represented the tree of life and that gave light using the exact same word that the lights are given in Genesis 1.14 and like the only places this word is used. So outside the temple, you're in chaos in the sea. And then you come to the temple being held up by the pillars. And then you come in and you see cloud, the produce of vegetation, a tree that's bearing light. And Josephus writes that before the doors or the holy of holies, the most holy place or separating part of the temple, there was embroidered a a veil embroidered in blue and fine linen and scarlet and purple and and of a texture that was truly wonderful. Notice the colors. Nor was this mixture of colors without its mystical interpretation, but was a kind of image of the universe. This curtain had also embroidered upon it all that was mystical in the heavens. So you see this curtain, and what does it look like? The blues and the colors of the sky and the heavens. And when you pull the curtain back to the heavens, you enter into the place where God dwells. Are you seeing how the imagery of the temple is a reflection of what we read in Genesis 1 
of creation. Now, temples were modeled on creation, and we've read that Josephus says they're called to model it. Did you know that there was always gardens planted next to temples? Because as the priests would carry out their daily sacrifices, they needed to make sure they had, can we say like, free-range organic produce to offer gods the best. So they would have their own gardens where they would raise their own cattle and they would keep their own animals and they would tend their own trees and vineyards and crops. And when you think of garden, guys, I mean, you got to kind of think like Texas scale, all right? You can't think, yeah, I got my like three tomato plants out there in the back. You've got to think acreage. I mean, apple orchard style, all right? And you read in Genesis 2 about what? A garden planted in creation. Guys, do you realize that after temples were built, there was a seven-day period of consecrating them? I'm not just talking the Bible, though this is true of the biblical temple as well. Throughout the ancient Near East, you can read it in their records, after temples were finished, they still weren't temples. They had to be consecrated, inaugurated, and they would have to go through rituals and ceremonies. And how long would they last? Seven days. And do you know what would happen at the end of the consecration period? And guys, this is where it starts getting mind-blowing. They would say the God would then come to dwell in his temple. See, at its fundamental base, a temple is a place where God lives, where a God dwells, an intersection, right? Where he can be found. But that's not the language that they used. Do you know what the language they used for what a God did in a temple? A God would rest. After seven days, a God would come to rest in a temple. Now, just so you're not missing the connotation here, we hear rest, right? And what are you thinking? Yeah, you know, it's like TV, bag of chips, and get in the couch, right? Rest to us means nap and relaxation. Do you understand that's not a biblical definition? That's a 21st century definition? Let me show you just some of the ways that the word rest is used elsewhere in the Bible. This is from 2 Samuel 7, okay? In 2 Samuel 7, it's the time of King David. And if you don't know the story, David was this this nobody, this shepherd boy that God had chosen to replace a king who looked like he would be everybody. God consecrates him and says, I am giving my kingdom, my rule, Israel, to you. You think Saul just kind of went, okay, that's cool. And what you can read through Jesus' Bible is the account of how David struggled and fight and fought and was defeated and overcame and wrestled through coming to terms and taking hold of that which God was giving him. And at the end, at the end of the process, it says this, after David was settled in his palace and the Lord had done what? Given him rest from all his enemies around him, Dot, dot, dot. He went and took a nap and watched TV for the next 40 years of his reign. No, what did he do? He started ruling the country. Have you noticed, and those of you who have started your own businesses know this, those of you who have started FOF know this, isn't there in many ways some of the hardest work is done before it ever begins? 
Because before it begins, you're working 24-7 trying to get it going. Why? So you got a beautiful thing to look at like a trophy on the shelf? No, so you could finally enter in to doing the job of running the business, running the church, running the company. You know what I mean, right? And you know what's so ironic about this passage here today? Do you know what the first thing David does after he gets rest from his enemies? He says to Nathan the prophet, look, I'm living in the palace of cedar. And the presence of God is out in some moldy tent. And so Nathan says, well, I don't know what you're up to, but go for it. And that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord said, are you the one to build me a house? Substitute this word, a temple. A temple to live in. I have not dwelt in a temple from the day I was brought, I brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And I want to ask you why. Why in light of what, what we're discovering about Genesis 1, did God never do that? And here it is. Because when God created the heavens and the earth, what he was doing was building a temple. When God created the heavens and the earth, as Genesis 1 explains it, God is in the process of creating a temple, a place where he would live, a place brought into order and purpose and meaning, a place that was creation and not just a model and the little local things that the people of the ancient Near East would see. And God was a God who came to rest in his temple. It's like God created this universe as a place where he could be met. While all the local pagans are running around looking for the holy and magical spots that might be intersections of heaven and earth, Yahweh comes forth and he says, this is my temple. And I am the one who rests here, which means I am the one in operational control. I have built an intersection where I can be met. And I am in control of this sucker And it's here in this universe that you can meet a God like me. Solomon, after he consecrates the temple of stone that he built, says this, but will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, can't contain you. Doesn't it feel true? Doesn't the rhetorical question feel true. Can God really dwell here among people? Who here hasn't asked, where are you, Lord? Are you resting in your temple, Lord? How can someone as big and grand as you be found here? And do you know what the Bible's answer is? Do you know what its answer is to this question? Yes. That is the exact point of what Genesis 1 is about. And I will argue on top of that, that is precisely how Jesus understood himself from reading his own Bible. Do you realize that in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls himself a temple? And not only does Jesus call himself a temple, I mean, what's it like to be there and watch like the temple go into the temple? That Jesus calls himself the temple and then actually pronounces judgment on the temple of stone 
that cannot contain the God of heaven. This is how Jesus understood himself and how his first followers understood themselves. Look at this from the writer uh, Paul in the New Testament. Jesus, he says, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And read the next paragraph with me. For by him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross because Jesus understood himself as the God of Genesis 1 who created a temple where he could be found, who created a universe that he had come to dwell in. And this, this is what Genesis 1 is really about. So now you know temples. And now you know creation. And now you know Genesis 1. And now you know who Jesus is. May you hear his invite to meet him in this place. This world he calls his temple. Where he has intersected. At rest. In control. And can be found. Would you rise and pray with me? Forgive us, Lord, for for asking our small-minded questions to your word when to us, God, there is something deeper and greater you look to reveal. Forgive us, God, for fixating on the wrong questions, for missing the obvious. Forgive us, O God, when we question whether this universe is in your control whether you are here, whether you can be found. Forgive us, God, for doubting that you are at rest, running this place, bringing order and meaning and purpose and beauty out of chaos. And God, forgive us when we defile your temple. Forgive us, God, when we just ruin it. for ourselves and for others when we clouded and marred and vandalized us forgive us God may we see you may we trust you Lord Jesus may we see how Genesis testifies to who you are And may we trust that you're at rest so we can rest. Leave you in operational control. God, I just want to pray you mark us by this and you change us by this. And you start to remap and reform our thinking and how we approach you. 
So here today, in this temple that you have created, hear the shouts and the cries and the praise of your people whom you have made through Jesus Christ who made it all. Amen.